in your community. The One Voice Podcast. You know, we're not always an easy or comfortable listen. And that's certainly true of one of our encounters in this month's One Voice. Hello and welcome to the podcast that's in partnership with Northampton Methodist Church and Methodist Church Northampton District. This is John Rose and this time we cover the notion of preaching with sensitivity in Lent and Easter. It's the theme of the District Study Day at the end of February and the Reverend Bruce Thompson is someone who's long been an advocate for the Jewish faith and its communities. And he really has never shied away from identifying anti-Semitism where he's found it and issues that have raised their head in the Christian faith. It's a two-part conversation you'll do well not to miss. Now, being both a treasurer and a trustee in the Methodist Church could certainly be described as all-consuming. And thank goodness Northampton has someone as knowledgeable and diligent as Keith Brooks for those demanding roles. Keith tells you his story in a short time. Amel Brown, the Overston Pioneer Community Chaplain, has sent us a great, really fantastic piece of audio that reports on her wonderful work in that part of the county. This is One Voice. To the first part of our conversation with the Reverend Bruce Thompson, who starts by outlining the role he performs now. Well, I'm returning to circuit ministry after 12 years as uh, chair of the Lincolnshire Methodist District. And so I have pastoral responsibility for three churches in the Wantage and Abingdon circuit, Didcot, Milton and Wallingford. Very pleased to be here. So it's a very general sort of experience of circuit ministry, presbyteral ministry, very much enjoying being in the community and identifying what the possibilities are for each of those three churches in their respective communities. So general ministry back on the front line, so to speak, after 12 years of being apart from uh, a local church. And in the nicest possible way, Bruce, has has that transition um, thrown up any um, surprises or challenges along the way to go from a district chair back to the role you've just described? No, not really. I, I, I exercised the role of district chair for 12 years, which is a long time. Um, and there is a, a kind of suspicion, if you like, a, a, a slight apprehension that during that period of time, you become de-skilled in terms of local ministry because you are um, distant from the rhythm of weekly worship in the same context and pastoral visiting on that in that terms of um, the local community rather than exercising much of ministry as a district chair alongside presbyters deacons circuit stewards and of course colleague chairs at uh, a kind of managerial to use that phrase level rather than so much as a pastoral level there's a obviously there's pastoral a lot of pastoral work in terms of being a district chair but there's an awful lot of managerial uh, responsibility too 
um, and, and that kind of sometimes outweighs the pastoral, whereas in the local circuit ministry, um, the pastoral, I think, is priority and rightly so. And the rhythm of leading worship and prayer alongside people on a on a much more frequent basis, a much more regular rhythm, a regular pattern. And and and, you know, that kind of getting to know one another and getting to know the local community and, and operating on a smaller landscape physical landscape um is is quite exciting i happened i think some of the apprehension was quickly dispelled it, it was as i'd hoped it would be i felt very strongly called to return to circuit ministry for all sorts of reasons i think i'd served my time as district chair uh, and i had a few more years to give before full-time uh, retirement uh, and um so i'm 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 really enjoying it enormously there have been a number of changes since I was last in circuit ministry, not least uh, marriage schedules rather than certificates and uh, mm. registers. So that's something that uh, is still filling me with a little bit of apprehension <laughs> because I've yet to undertake uh, my first wedding in this new system that we have. I've no doubt it'll just be a case of going through the first wedding and filling in the first schedules mm. and so on and sending them off that will get me back on course. But really, the, and, and of course, the new statistical returns, the uh, 12, 14 years ago, we had those long sheets of paper, sort of about four or five copies of the same thing. And you had to press very hard for the carbon to get through to the bot. That's how long ago it is since I was in frontline <laughs> ministry. So doing those first those first statistics for mission returns and so on uh, was was an interesting exercise. So I was I was a little de-skilled in that. And, and I'm more on my own again now. I don't have a PA as I did as a district chair who kept me um, on message and mm. kept me uh, kept my diary up to date. So it's much more down to me again. And I'm absolutely enjoying the variety, the diversity of it. Well, you've now obviously made a, a very public declaration, Bruce, on uh, assorted podcaster apps and platforms uh, that you are available for that <laughs> that wedding as it were wedding so any couples <laughs> that are hearing this and thinking right we really must get the reverend bruce thompson then <laughs> we're responsible and, uh, and apologize just stepping back into some of your story your history i know that you've led trips to the holy land that very first one bruce what kind of transformation or enlightenment did it bring how did it enhance you well, I've been keenly interested in Christian-Jewish relationships since I was 12 years of age and also the Israel-Palestine conflict since I was 12 years of age and the Munich Olympic massacre. It fired my imagination. It made me wonder what on earth was going on. But it took 23 years for me to leave my first pilgrimage in 1995. I was fairly reluctant to go, actually. I was fairly reluctant to lead a pilgrimage. It was my next-door neighbour and member of the church in which I was serving in Timpley, South Manchester, that persuaded me to lead the pilgrimage. And I, I tried to get one of my circuit colleagues to do so. I didn't really want to do it, even though I had some interest, uh, still great interest in Jewish-Christian relations. The thought of visiting the Holy Land wasn't really high up on my priority list. Uh, and to be perfectly honest, I was nervous about doing so, about going there. But that first visit changed my life, really. There were a number of events uh, 
leading up to that that changed my sort of or deepened my interest in Judaism uh, and so on. But that first visit really did deepen my appreciation for the land, for the people, uh, and also for for the relationships that ensue there. I remember seeing the uh, Western Wall being on the itinerary and I, I wanted to go for a Christian pilgrimage so I couldn't really understand why we would bother spending time at the Western Wall but the truth of the matter is it was a Tuesday and there were bar mitzvahs there and this experience was a very live joyful experience of being amongst people celebrating the coming of age of, of their youngsters and for no reason whatsoever except some deeply hidden emotion. It took me by complete surprise. I had no awareness that this was going to happen, but I, I simply found tears rolling down my face. It was, it was just an extraordinary experience. And all I can say is it was, it was somehow like going home, visiting the holy places, visiting the land was like going home. I was 36 years of age and uh, all my life, of course, we, I'd grown up in Sunday school, youth fellowship, uh, local preacher, now presbyter. My whole kind of interest in in in, in scripture and uh, was brought alive by being there. And a number of people who have taken on pilgrimages since have said to me that Easter was never the same after the pilgrimage. It was different. It was the topography meant a great deal understanding the locations and the distances between places meant a very great deal and I, I think that's that's one of the reasons why I've continued to do that to continue leading pilgrimages is because people have come back and said Chris, uh, Easter sometimes Christmas uh, as wasn't the same afterwards it, it all fitted into place with the topography uh, and and illuminated scripture uh, and and faith in a wholly different way I think, Bruce, it's fair to say that, I mean, certainly when you read your biography, some, let's say some of the, the catalyst for your interest, your curiosity, etc., now this passion and empathy, etc., around Judaism came from uh, your concerns that in some quarters, clearly uh, in Christianity, there's hostility towards Jews. Is that something you found a definitive answer for in terms of why why that comes to the surface? I first became aware of the impact the gospel accounts, in particular John's account of the gospel, was having on my friends in the Jewish community around 1999, four years after my first pilgrimage and some years after uh, sort of attending uh, events with my friends in the Jewish community. When someone remarked that John's account of the gospel was anti-Semitic, and I'd gone through Sunday school, youth fellowship, membership, local preachers, theological college, without anyone actually hinting that some of the difficult texts of John's account of the gospel and some other texts elsewhere in our New Testament could be seen to be offensive to members of the Jewish community. And to be perfectly honest, I was shocked when I first heard this, despite my appreciation of Judaism, despite my love and affection and respect for so many people in the community, I was absolutely shocked by this statement that John's account of the gospel could be seen by members of the Jewish community as anti-Semitic. So I went back and I took a look at this and, and having 
been alongside members of the Jewish community for a number of years, I, I kind of really read the account of the gospel from a Jewish perspective, you know, not that I could ever do that properly, but to try and put myself in the shoes, the mindset of my friends in the Jewish community. And I did actually recognize that, yes, there, there's the significant hostility to, to, to the Jewish community, particularly John's account of the gospel. Uh, and so that set me on a what has been a, a, a 24 year, 25 year pilgrimage, 25 year journey of discovery of how it was that this could be. More from that candid and revealing conversation as the podcast develops. Now, a couple of notices that may be something you want to take up. Earthlingborough Methodist Church have been publicising the Alpha course on their Facebook page, characterising it as a series of group conversations that freely explore the basics of the Christian faith in an open, friendly environment. Everyone is welcome. No matter what your background or beliefs, you're invited. You can find out more at alpha.org.uk forward slash try hyphen alpha alpha.org.uk forward slash try hyphen alpha i do need to tell you about a performance that you must try and see we'll do that in a moment i'm just going to hold fire on it uh, to let mel brown highlight what's going on in Overston. This is One Voice. Since 2019, the Northampton District has been partnering with neighbouring circuits with an aim to bring a Christian presence to the new housing community in Overstone. So they are building over 3,500 homes over a 10 year period. And we have been exploring what a Christian presence can look like working ecumenically with the Anglican Church. The vision which underpins the work that we're doing is a wonderful vision, which is to be a friend and to help to build the new community in Overstone, sharing God's love and light with a hope that we can build a tangible expression of faith. And some of the ways that we have been doing this is by giving a doorstep welcome to new residents sometime after they have settled in, presenting them with a goodie bag, with lots of goodies, um, and with an information about who we are and why we are here. We facilitate festive events, which enables the community to come together, sharing the same space. And we also do this through gift giving throughout the year, Valentine's Day, um, and also during the Easter season. So our walking group is one-year-old. Uh, we have walked together for hours and hours and miles and miles and the walking group is wonderful. We're able to share life experiences and stories. The group has provided a space to share testimony of God's love and grace and also to share how walking with him can bring help and encouragement to our lives. The new care home celebrated their first anniversary in November and we have a really lovely relationship with the care home. We make regular visits and we hold monthly services. It really has been a great and wonderful opportunity to be an intentional Christian presence in this new community. Let me just say, if you want dynamism and an attitude that anything is possible, then Mel is very much the person. All right, that performance I mentioned, that production, the Harston Road players are presenting the pantomime 
Peter Pan at St Andrew's Church on Friday the 16th of February. The curtain up time is half past seven. There's also a performance on the Saturday, the next day, the 17th of February. Two prices on those tickets, adults seven fifty, and children are £5. That is at St Andrew's Church, Peter Pan, the pantomime by the Harston Road Players. Support that if you can. On Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, this is One Voice. Keith Brooks is here in around 10 minutes or so to reflect on what it means to be a treasurer and a trustee in the Methodist Church. Now, though, let's rejoin the conversation with the Reverend Bruce and the topic of anti-Jewish sentiment. I discovered, which I wonder never really told me this, that the hostility between Jews and Christians began very early on, but was kind of, you can't actually pinpoint a date, but the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple really turned the heat up in terms of the hostility between the two communities at that point. The believers, uh, the Jewish believers of Jesus and the uh, those members of the Jewish community who did not believe in Jesus were at loggerheads. And that kind of conflict deepened over the decades and centuries thereafter. Once the Roman Empire embraced Christianity as the official religion of the empire, um, Jews were seen to be second class citizens. Uh, as early as the fourth century, they weren't allowed to become members of the civic service. They weren't allowed to hold uh, officers, officers in the in the military. They weren't allowed to build new synagogues. They weren't allowed to proselytize. They weren't allowed to employ Gentiles to light their candles. The, the prejudice is so deep. Uh, it would take me a very, very long period of time indeed to, to sort of even give an overview of, of that. And over the centuries, um, the Christian church has a very checkered history in terms of its relationship with Jews from blaming Jews per se for the death of Jesus mm. um, to laying the blame at members of the Jewish community for plague and pandemic, economic recession, political turmoil. It's quite a salutary lesson to read the history of Christian Jewish relationships over 2000 years and, of course, culminating in the the Holocaust in terms of church indifference in part uh, and in some part um, wholly complicit with the Nazis in, in Germany in the 30s and 40s. Um, so the groundwork, the environment was created by that hostility over centuries. And uh, I think, well, it was Franklin Littell, a Methodist minister, who was a seminarian in uh, an American se seminarian in the 1930s with Jewish with sorry German parents mm -hmm. uh, they were emigrants to the United States who then visited a Nuremberg rally and was re remonstrated with the the Nazis there he could hear the nuances in the German language and not mm -hmm. only just the hostility but he he was um, there's a wonderful photograph if you look him up Franklin Littell at Nuremberg about to be thrown out of the rally and he returned to Germany after the Second World War and was part of the denazification program for I think 10 years and, and then became really the first Methodist Holocaust academic Holocaust historian in the States mm. and he said that the Christian church would never really reach its full potential in terms of mission and ministry until it repented of its relationship with Jew, historic relationship with Jews. 
it brings me on, Bruce, uh, to the fact that, that some of the other visits you've led have been to former concentration camps. Do you have a worry that we'll just let history repeat itself? Well, history teaches us that it does repeat mm. itself, but mm. not in the exact terms. The past echoes in the present. Mm. The present rhymes with the past. And and so it expresses itself in different forms. I mean, for centuries, there was uh, religious prejudice against Jews, uh, principally at the hands of the Christian church, as it influenced state and public opinion. During the Enlightenment, the religion became less important. Uh, it had less of a sway on the intelligentsia and so on. So the religious aspect of the prejudice eased. But this was a false dawn because although although Jews suddenly found themselves liberated from the ghetto, principally the Venice ghetto that had been in place for you know 250 years or something, a, a new form of prejudice arose, and that was racial prejudice in terms of the um, the fact that Jews were seen to be different alongside other races as well. But uh, the, the race hadn't really been, the ethnicity hadn't really been a problem up until the rise of the nation state and, and, and uh, racial theories of the 19th century, which led to the, the actual term anti-Semitism was coined in 1879 by Wilhelm Marr. Uh, and so that anti-Semitism, racial prejudice rather than religious prejudice, became the dominant form of Jew hatred, which culminated, as I said, in the in, in the Holocaust or Shoah, as Jews would prefer to use the term meaning catastrophe. The Nazis weren't interested if people went to synagogue or not. Christians whose parents and grandparents were Jews were sent to the gas chambers. It wasn't about religion, it was about ethnicity, um, but the same outcome uh, of, of prejudice. And certainly um, the rise, the spike in um, anti-Semitism, as we would use, the, still continue to use that phrase in the UK, across Europe and in the United States since October the 7th, is a very deeply worrying trend. Um, we have to remember that people are being targeted, even though they may not be supporters of Israel. Um, they're just simply being targeted because they're Jews or or in some cases uh, have sympathy for the Jewish cause or, or relationship with Jews. Um, the security that is required for synagogues and Jewish schools or even any Jewish event, any gathering of, of, of Jews, the, the security it has to be significant because... We've had a thousand percent rise in anti-Semitism. We've had mm. uh, a rise in Islamophobia too. Mosques have been attacked and uh, people have been attacked on the streets. But the the extraordinary rise uh, in anti-Semitism is a, a tragic reminder of what can happen if this continues to go unchecked and we don't deal with it. Bruce, uh, let's uh, bring that in in some kind of order to uh, the study day. The study day is uh, part of the foundation, if you like, for the conversation that we're having now. The details of it uh, will be, I know, in the episode description of the podcast. C can you just give us a summary of, of what that is, what the study day is and what it aims to do? Yeah, the theme for the day is preaching with sensitivity. I, I became aware of the kind of pitfalls of preaching without an understanding of the true context of our gospel accounts in particular uh, and the hostility between the Jewish and Christian communities 
um, when the, those gospel accounts were compiled. So I, I, I dread to think what I might have said prior to that understanding uh, 24, 25 years ago. I'd been preaching at that point for 18 years. And I, I dread to think how I might have approached scripture without that better understanding. I mean, it, it is a lifelong quest to understand more fully the context of, of those scripture accounts, why they were compiled in a way that they were, the, the stories that were chosen, the parables that were chosen, the way in which they've been interpreted over the centuries. And what we're going to do is, is have an overview of the Christian relationship with Judaism over that over 2000 years. Uh, this isn't about Israel-Palestine. It's not about the Middle East conflict. It's not about Israel-Hamas. It's nothing to do with that. It's about us understanding the context of our, our, our scriptures uh, and how we go about preaching and, and learning from those scriptures in a more sensitive, more um, aware fashion. So there will be an overview to begin with in terms of our relationship with Judaism, Christian relationship with Judaism. But then we will be looking at how those texts are indeed interpreted by others. It is a form of unconscious bias, in a sense, that um, we, we might lift a text from scripture and take it at face value without understanding how offensive that may be to others and indeed the the history behind that text and how it has been interpreted over the centuries uh, and in some cases tragically to deepen prejudice uh, and discrimination to play on our own our own sense of being if you like our own sense of triumph one of the great sadnesses is the way in which some think that the church that christianity superseded judaism which to me says that God must have changed his mind. And I do, I'm not a person who believes that God changes his mind or her mind in any shape or form. I think it's important for us to recognise that Judaism has a place in our world and Christianity has much to learn from it. Jews have been marginalised minority communities for 2000 years. Wherever Jews have been, they've been part of a marginalised minority. And in Britain today, Christianity is becoming more and more marginalised and a minority. And I think we have a lot to learn from the Jewish community in how we can remain effective, meaningful, fulfilled mm -hmm. uh, fr from the way in which they have survived for 2000 years in more, even more difficult circumstances. And on a, I suppose, a more immediate uh, local domestic level, if you like, Bruce, you're hopes and expectations for this Lent and Easter to emanate from the study day. What what are those? How would you characterise those? Well, I hope that we would approach the passion narratives in particular with a newfound sensitivity and understanding. We know that the scriptures tell us that uh, the Jews called for the death of Jesus, that uh, his blood be upon our heads and upon the heads of our children and grandchildren, that... Uh, the account tells us that they were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, when, of course, they were Jews themselves. What does all that mean? And come to understand that this it, it, it is a, a more human rather than a particular faith response to the goodness and the uniqueness of Jesus. Um, that whenever ultimate goodness manifests itself, hostility arises. That isn't to do with 
any particular faith or community or race. It, it's to do with the human condition that deep down within us all, there is an element of insecurity and fear and apprehension of the other. Uh, and it's how we manage that apprehension, lest it become prejudice, discriminatory uh, and hostile. So it will be about addressing unconscious bias, if you like. Mm. And it's about it's about us being the people God would have us be in terms of understanding our own history uh, and also our own the way in which our own minds are 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 kind of uh, evolving to understand ever greater need for um, recognizing that each of us is made in the image of God. Mm. It's certainly a good deal to think about there. The Reverend Bruce Thompson talking to me earlier this month. And a reminder that the District Study Day is Saturday the 24th of February at Bouverie Court, 6 The Lakes, Northampton, between 10am and 3pm. You can get more information and register by emailing claire at office at northamptonmethodistdistrict.co.uk office at northamptonmethodistdistrict.co.uk and it does sound like with Bruce at the helm there'll be some real invigorating torrents of thought. Now it's time to meet someone whose professional life has brought considerable skills to their contribution to church life. Let's hear from Keith Brooks. The One Voice Podcast. Right, Keith, you're both the treasurer and a trustee. Let's cover the treasurer role first. What what does a role like that ask of you? Well, as, as a treasurer, you basically have a a set of specific responsibilities regarding the financial management and control of the charity. So there's an expectation that you will bring a level of understanding and probably professional experience to the role such that the decisions that are being made, you can express the pounds and pence view, which clearly is important but is not always the the primary decision but at the back of my mind always yes it does make financial sense has got to be one of the things that I consider. Those responsibilities they go beyond which you've, you've intimated really go beyond numbers on a spreadsheet you know we've spoken I know historically about you overseeing work in manses a new kitchen here a new bathroom there other work so, so you have to be in the know about quite a lot of things, really. To some extent, that, that's a bit of a worrying one because I do exceed my treasurer role in some of those. In that, yes, my experience probably is slightly wider than just financial and therefore I do feel relatively comfortable talking to tradesmen about what they're doing and generally can take a, a view as to whether it's robust and financially the right thing to do but that would be beyond what I would say is if I'm advertising for a treasurer I'm not that's not what I'm actually asking for I am asking for somebody that brings the financial piece to the table as their priority and, and this this is something that you know a set of skills attributes etc experience that comes uh, very largely from your professional background as well. Yes. Uh, many, many years ago, I learnt that the best way to be accepted as an accountant 
was to be able to understand and talk the lingo of those that you are talking with. So I always used to pride myself at being able to visit a railway bridge and talk to the engineers about what they were doing or why they were digging that drainage ditch or why that retaining wall was going that far and not that much, a little bit shorter. Why, why are you doing all of that? But that was always something I felt was important. And it generally meant that you got acceptance from the engineer as somebody that they valued and appreciated. So it's, it's always been something that I've, I've wanted to bring to the table. I was going to say I hope that mantas are less complicated than railway bridges, but I'm not sure maybe <laughs> whether that's always the case. Uh, yes, they probably are. Yes, yes, yes. Notice of discussing the, the electric supply at, um, at Britannia Bridge many years ago was, was one of my fun experiences, but... But no, the electrical supply demands is generally a little bit less complicated. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I'm sort of you know putting in my own vocabulary here, maybe, but it, it, it strikes me that there's a need to be impartial and obviously cast a, a diligent eye, a professional eye over numbers, etc., like you say, finances. But does that that ever sit at odds with your faith, Keith, and, and cause a, a friction there? It doesn't cause friction, but it does make me aware that at times you need to make decisions that are directed by your faith first and examples like what we're doing with Queensgrove and the night shelter at the moment whereby we are talking about not a an agreement where we're looking for profit but a, an agreement where we're looking to co fully cover our costs and at the same time working in partnership with other charities such that we are providing a facility for the community during the winter period. And that type of decision is one where faith does have to take a quite key centre point. At the same time, when you're making decisions about selling something sometimes, you do have to demonstrate that you are getting good value for your charity. When we uh, talk about the role of uh, a trustee, invariably uh, governance, I mean governance as a word will come up a lot in, in both these areas, I guess, but I mean, what, what is required of a trustee? If you read Charity Commission CC3, there is a very clear definition of what a trustee is, but it, it, it fundamentally is to use their best judgment to ensure that the operation and management of the charity is being done as effectively as it possibly can. And as a trustee, the expectation is that you bring to the table your expertise. And clearly, if you are an expert in any particular um, area, then there is an expectation that you bring that knowledge to the management of that charity. The Charity Commission is quite clear about its definition of, of trustee role and it is is challenging and it is difficult and I've sat at the um, feet of various experts from the Charity Commission who have talked governance in great detail at times. But you can come away from it generally feeling satisfied that as long as you are using your expertise and your knowledge fully then you're completing the role satisfactorily 
charity and charity law is a changing landscape i don't know how often this it evolves and how, how drastic those changes are but keeping up to speed with things refreshes are presumably uh, important yeah there's obviously there's not been that many charity acts in the last 20 years there's been one two years ago that did make some changes and did relax some of the requirements but also strengthened others in terms of involvement. The more interesting ones is actually the charity accounting piece where you have to keep up not only with charity law but also international accounting regulations and there is a prospect that when they change suddenly there is a need to change charity accounting. But that again hasn't happened for quite some years now. The last time they changed any of that was in 2012. So we've had 10 years of minimal change. That doesn't mean it couldn't change again. I have been involved with conversations nationally as to the ways that could change, but it's gone very quiet post-COVID. So let's, I'm quite happy to sit back and be wait. Trustees, amongst other requirements, uh, must act with, uh, and I'll quote, reasonable skills, care, they must act prudently and responsibly. Are those attributes that just, you know, come naturally, Keith, or, or you know, do, do you find there's, there's an element of a continuing development there, if you like? I'm not saying about continuing development, <laughs> but, but prudence is always the one that you, you kind of struggle with. Yeah. Um, I, is that really the right decision to make? Is it really the right decision not to buy something new? Or is it the right decision to, to spend that money now? That's always one of the questions. And if I look back and look back 10 years ago, we were talking about what we should have been doing as a Methodist circuit 10 years ago and maybe we took the decision then to wait and see and maybe we shouldn't have been quite so cautious Mm -hmm. and so at times prudence you can look back in hindsight and think was that always the right decision to make in other senses I always remember the conversation we had about the roof at St Andrews when we were looking at insulating it and saying we could go for three inches or we could go for six or nine inches of insulation and the fact that we went for nine inches because it fitted easier was definitely a good item of of prudence it cost us a bit more but that has definitely delivered in in terms of heat savings so there's a there's a, a St Andrews treasury remembering those conversations many years ago and that is that de- was definitely prudence at the time but that was listening to the guy that knew what he was talking about and not me making those decisions if you were from either role from from treasurer or trustee or something from both if you were to pick out something that has struck you as particularly rewarding in one or both those roles and you're not allowed to say insulation by the way no. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be something other than three six or nine inch insulation what what, what would you say as as as, as you, something you've been really proud of i suppose i expect one of the things that i have to, from a methodist church perspective i being very careful what i say i i'm actually relatively pleased that i did get involved with what we did in the early 2000 and 2012 to 15 
when we did redraft the the accounts that get used by the churches across the whole of the connection um, and I was involved with the working party that did that and I've been relatively proud since I still get upset when somebody says these are too complicated to fill in but I, I do still reflect gosh I was rather pleased that I did volunteer to be involved with that one as a as a specific there you are that's a, that's a, a specific example thanks go to Keith the Reverend Bruce Thompson and Mel Brown and next time a story that embodies hope in more ways than one Find out more in February. Until then, take care. Stories, community and what brings us together.